So, gentlemen, we are now live. I appreciate you for joining today. I'm looking forward to it. I feel like the pre-conversation we've already had, you know, if that's any predictor of how great this conversation is going to be, it's going to be a really fun hour or so. So let's start, Aaron. What are you drinking right now? Uh, yeah, I'm drinking uh, Black is Beautiful. Uh, this one by the guys over at Scofflaw in the Atlanta area. Uh, doing some nice stuff. There's is a uh, coffee version. It's only 5%. It drinks a lot bigger than it is. And I got a backup oh as well because I know how this group's probably going to roll. So I got Wise Men's uh, Wonders <laughs> Told here tomorrow uh, hang, hanging out in case I need a refresher. I didn't realize they were doing any Black is Beautifuls at only 5%. That's fun. Oh, yeah. Keep, keep it nice and light. I mean, you got to have something sessionable as sport a great cause. I love it. How about you, Rick? I've got um, Pickle Recovery from Dead Armadillo out of Tulsa, Oklahoma. It's a dill pickle goza. It's uh, outstanding. I actually prefer it chasing it with Jameson, but I'm, I'm fresh out of Jameson. <laughs> we'll give you a minute if you want to run to the kitchen or the store or have someone you know deliver. I'm going to need a backup because Aaron pre-planned, so I think he, he gets a star right now. Thinking ahead. So I'm going to one-up all you guys. My wife just sent me a picture of a wine fridge. She's like, do you need this? I'm like, yes, I need a fridge for my office. So she's actually out picking a fridge up for me right now. I don't have this problem. Next panel conversation. Oh, man. Good Good sir, it didn't happen. <laughs> you bet, better get her diamonds for Christmas. Mm -hmm. For wine. Don, what about you? What's in your cup? Man, it's a little Marzen from uh, Fauna Flora. A traditional toasty autumn lager beer. It's delicious. I've got one to back up in my fridge. Always a good style this type of year. And Ed, yes. how about you? You drinking anything uh, right now? Yeah, this is from Human Robot. These guys are out of Philly. Mm. It's a content therapy. Or they're in Philly, uh, what, Kensington neighborhood, actually. So actually, I was there the, this past Saturday, actually, checking those guys out. So. Yeah. Ed, Ed what, uh, what style of beer is that? Uh, it's a double IPA. It's uh, about an 8.5. Attaboy. <laughs> Starting strong. <laughs> yeah, here we are. So it's going to be a short panel for you. over the top. <laughs> <laughs> so hey, I'm, I not drive. I'm not driving. I went with a little bit lower alcohol than you gentlemen today. I went with the, the Seria, or is it Seria, Rick? What did you oh, say no, earlier? Seria. No, no. Seria, the non-alcoholic, because if I started drinking now and tried to do all of our activities until 9 o'clock tonight, you know, it'd be a little tough. But yeah, with that attitude. <laughs> But gentlemen, I appreciate you joining today. I think there's been no other hot topic. And John, you've already spoken on a little of this conference. And Aaron, you mm -hmm. kind of touched on this, like the state of the market last week at the AMA. But the state of distribution right now is definitely a really fun thing to think about. And, you know, what can I do best besides bring four smart people in to share their experiences about it? Like, you know, during this pandemic, we've seen breweries try everything. They've done curbside pickup, as we were talking about earlier, to e-commerce. And the beer board says that on-premise sales were down 37% in quarter three and off-premise was up 10% according to IRI. But there's been so many articles out there that says this is somewhat misleading to how craft breweries are really doing. And pre-COVID, Bart Watson threw out statistics that the on-premise sales, they accounted for 45% of craft beer by volume before the pandemic. And right now, the reports by the IWSR are that craft will be down 12 to 15% for the first half of 2020 first 2019. So there's a lot to talk about right now, but before we really dive into what you guys know so much about, I just want you to give your 30 second intros of who you are and you know why we have you here today. Aaron, let's begin with you, my man. 
Uh, yeah. So Aaron Gore, I am the uh, founder and owner of Fresh Pitch Beverage Consulting. I help breweries sell their product more effectively, more efficiently, and more strategically. Also, I'm really hard to get to shut up about pretty much anything about beer. And I like long walks on the beach, sunsets, and every Disney movie other than Frozen. <laughs> well, we're always glad to have you, Aaron. And Rick, what do you do, sir? Um. <laughs> <laughs> Disney movies, really? Okay. Uh, my name is Rick Lasaghi. I am the uh, partner, um, managing partner at Craft Beverage Consultants. You just had Tara Nuren on earlier today. She's one of she's our director of storytelling here. And my role at the firm, we have about twelve people on 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 staff or on assignment, if you will, or get at need needing to be hired. And I do sales, marketing, distribution, national accounts. Um, I spent um, 11 years at one of the top five wholesalers in the United States. Spent Took a Southern California brewery from 30,000 cases and chains all the way up to 300,000 in about four years, less than four years, actually. So um, I, I, got, I got a broad perspective of stuff, and our agency does liquor, beer, and wine, but primarily focused in beer is where I'd say about 80% of what who our clients are right now. And my favorite movie is Weird Science. Good, Good one. John? Good choice. Yeah, so guys, I'm John Kelly. I'm uh, <clears throat> CEO of Craft Peak, and we are basically a, a technology company that's dedicated to the, the craft beverage industry. Uh, the majority of our customers are also craft breweries uh, here in the U.S., some in the U.K. We got a few in Australia, and it's really helping breweries. Uh, really, we we like to dive in, understand your your business challenges from a fundamental perspective, and then we build technology solutions to address that. So, starting about five years ago, uh, a lot of that focus was uh, was based in in e-commerce, and that's just become more of a hot topic, as you guys know, over the last seven months, as our breweries are trying to digitally transform and, and make sure that we've got sales coming in and also kind of prepare for other things that are coming down the pike for us. It's going to be fun to see what comes the next few months out of all this. And Ed, tell yeah. us a little bit about what you do. Yeah, my name is Ed Carino from Americraft Beer. I'm based here in Brooklyn. Uh, my main business is actually exporting U.S. craft beer, which I've been doing for four years to Australia, Asia, Canada, and Europe. Uh, however, I have pivoted to also to sort of expand you know, diversify to the DTC space, just because I've seen a lot of my import partners where overseas you could be vertically integrated. So my import partner, let's say in Benelux is both my importer and distributor. He owns his own craft beer bar, bottle shop, and also does DTC. So uh, similarly, I was wondering, hmm, how can, how can you do that here in the US? So obviously it's, it's, it's a lot more complicated uh, in the US because of three tier, uh, all the various rules, et cetera. Uh, so really been uh, educating myself on that and uh, you know now and, and we'll be you know looking to launch a, a gtc platform uh, hopefully uh, end of october oh uh, andrew you might be andrew, on me sometimes but ed october the end of it i mean that's going to be here before you know it yeah no it's uh <laughs> back and forth with my web developer i mean as, as you can well imagine if you guys are familiar the the, the the hard part is the compliance, you know, in particular, wow. the rules tables, uh, where I'm sure some of you are familiar with uh, some sites out there, Sovo, Ship Compliant, you know, but they're really not appropriate for the smaller, medium-sized brewery. Uh, I actually got a quote from them for just 10 states doing about, what well, I think, 600 barrels yearly. My quote was over $20,000 <laughs> to use their service. So... 
not really appropriate for probably 95% of breweries. They're not going to fork over that kind of money. So, so let's uh, dive right into direct to consumer. You know, John, you talked about it already, Ed, you've already kind of dug in a little bit. You know, what does the ideal brewery look like that'll have success with direct to consumer sales? And, you know, we're looking at, you know, the, the in state model is the national model. What breweries do you see benefiting from this new, you know, phenomenon in craft beer? And anyone, feel free to jump in. We're just making a full fun conversation. Yeah, I'm happy to jump in on that one. <clears throat> um, I, uh, I'd love to give you a perfect buttoned up answer here, Andrew, but it really is going to depend on the brewery and for a lot of reasons. <clears throat> um, you know, direct to consumer is uh, an, another channel for a brewery. It is a diversified channel other than a tap room. Uh, it is like any other sales channel that requires management. And it needs to kind of play with with all of the things that you've got going on. So it, it really starts with the business strategy. Like, what are you trying to do as a brand? And are you a brand that has the kind of brand power that that extends beyond your kind of geographic locale? Does it cross straight state borders? Um, you know, there's some breweries out there that are always going to have national and international demand for their beers. And, you know, direct consumer relationship is a, is a great way or a, a potential alternative for, for breweries to do that. Um, you know, that is direct to consumer shipping. Uh, so I think that, yeah, you're gonna have a subset of breweries that, that are gonna do very well in that program. But I think direct consumer in general or, or online sales in general kind of works for any brewery. And if you're gonna do a, a curbside pickup model, if you are gonna do a, a local delivery model, you know, those are things that are, uh, I think just about every brewery is considering right now. I think the last stats that I saw from a, a, a fairly substantial industry-wide survey a couple of weeks ago is about 56% of breweries at this point are participating in some kind of e-commerce. And when we're talking e-commerce, we're really talking about you know beer sales here, um, which means that there's a lot of a, a lot of potential out there for um, for growth. Uh, but it's also getting breweries to understand, you know, what are the true costs associated with it? So, you know, I think some of the presentations that we're working through right now, and Andrew, you've given us the opportunity to do this, but we're, we're teaming up with some folks and we're saying, all right, what are the true costs if you're going to go participate in those channels? Uh, the cost associated with brewing that beer, packaging that beer, but then what are the sales costs and go-to-market costs associated with that? And I think that um, what I can tell you from the breweries that we work with, and I'm not, you know, not going to paint a picture for everybody, but maybe this uh, resonates with other folks, is that many of our breweries don't know what that contribution margin or that that profit margin is and right now they're scrambling because they can keep jobs and they can sell beer but is it profitable are they making the margins that they think they are and uh, and, and you tie you pair with that that for many breweries this is the first time that they've attempted something like this so you know when have you ever done something where you were the best at it the first time you tried it so there's a lot of process and workflow optimizations that are that are going to be coming and i think there's also uh, a lot of other technologies and solutions that are going to be coming that are going to help complement this and i think what we see is that e-commerce is here to stay um, if you are operating a business where you're not considering your other channels, then you're not looking at the other industries around you that have kind of moved in that direction. And I think there's a lot of indicators from other industries that we should be paying attention to right now. And e-commerce and direct consumer are booming. Uh, I think the, the relationship between a supplier and a, and a customer in that direct consumer relationship is really special. And I think part of it is, and what has me excited about this conversation is just to see like, where does that fit into the traditional models? You know, we 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 started Broom Beer. We were excited about it. Taproom was successful. Next thing we know, we make a capital expansion to open a production facility, and then we start distributing. Well, 
those uh, many breweries are in that spot right now. What does direct consumer mean now uh, <laughs> with those other uh, traditional kind of avenues that they're also participating in? No, I think, well, John, I think you bring up a really, really good point. Sorry, who's speaking? Well, I was going to say, uh, I think craft breweries, too, are a bit notorious as an industry for, uh, to your point, John, not having real good control over their operating expenses as it applies to their individual products. And there's nothing worse than selling an enormous amount of beer straight into bankruptcy court. So, so having a good understanding of the cost of actually doing business in that e-commerce space and, and understanding some of the realities therein and how it affects just your split and your package split, your uh, split to market is, is really important and something a lot of breweries need uh, help in really getting a handle on because for a lot of them, they're still figuring out how to apply operating expenses to self-distro versus taproom, much less something yeah. that's relatively young within the industry like this. I think... Um a lot of breweries that are doing it and John, it's a great topic and great question. Whoever threw that out there, it's, you, you have to look at it. If you are self distributing, you got to analyze and really look at the numbers and hopefully you have someone on your staff or you or somebody in particular that can help you see if the juice is worth the squeeze at the end of the day. If you are in wholesale distribution already, you need to look at that as giving up some of your margin like you do to your distributor as you would for those expenses for packaging materials and that type of stuff, you know, it's easy to pass that on the consumer, but if you have a 1199 six pack and by the time you get shipping and handling and stuff, someone wants that one six pack and it comes to them and it's $30. They're not, I mean, they're, they're going to leave their cart. They're going to get out of your website and look at that. So it's, I think it's still looking if, it's not for every business, every brewery, um, anyone who's been affected by this, the pandemic. But I think that those that can capitalize on it, and I would highly encourage you, starting in your own zip code, starting in maybe a couple surrounding zip codes, you know, um, it's going outside of crossing state lines. And you got to find out if, and you got to pay, you know, you already have to have someone 21 or over to sign for you. So you got to set up that account with either FedEx or UPS or however it works. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of chainsaws, as I like to call them, that you need to see if you can juggle to make it worth it. So I really think you need to investigate versus, hey, let's just go and do this. And then two months later, you find out I'm $10,000 in the hole. How did I get here type of thing? Yep. No, no. Like to, to bring up uh, it's just, uh, you know, what some others have said. Yeah. No, first of all, DTC will, is not a panacea for every brewery. You made crappy beer before. I'm not sure tap room. <laughs> You know, no one's going to want you to ship crappy beer to you in, in another state. So, you know, that that's your know, reality. Number one, you know, you know, if your beer quality isn't there, you don't have demand. And then that's related to, you know, what others have said is, OK, you got to market yourself still, <laughs> you know. So just because you have an online platform, great. You know, if no one knows, you know, what's available, when's available, so on and so forth, or that you're even doing it big deal you know you know anecdotally uh it can work i do know of breweries here in just in new york state where just within the state they're doing between 350 to 450 orders per week you know obviously that is probably an anomaly they are probably yeah. not going to be the average brewery uh so but you know they 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 found it great because they were able to bring back their taproom staff which they laid off early in the pandemic uh, and now they're just pick packing orders. But as as others have mentioned, the operationals, especially as John mentioned, that's the part because no one has done this. Okay, 
making sure you have the boxes. What are your SOPs to pull orders and, and to double check, triple check orders, just so you don't people don't screw up. What's damage rate? You know, then obviously also customer service. You're going to probably get more customer service inquiries either through your phone or through your email, as people. Uh, and again, as anyone who's done DTC, you know, you're just going to get more customer service and you know, customers complaining because that's what customers do. <laughs> so, you know, so it, it, there's definitely challenges. Uh, it's not right for every brewery. Uh, but I, I, as I think, as, as John mentioned, yeah, it's going to be here to stay. The breweries that I've seen have done, and these were, interestingly enough, breweries that I pitched about two years ago about DTC and poo-pooed it <laughs> idea. You know, literally, oh, why do I need that? I'm, I'm doing distro or I'm selling 80% through my tap room, blah, 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 you know. So really the, you know, COVID, you know, fortunately or unfortunately has really turned on the light, you know, the light bulb that, okay, I cannot rely on, you know, one or two revenue channels for, you know, for, for my, you know, for my sales, because if something goes down and yeah, I guess you can call the COVID a, a black swan event, you know, <laughs> you know, but it happened, you know. And there's nothing to say that and what others have said every 10 years, people have predicted we're going to have another, you know, COVID or type of pandemic every 10 years. You know, how bad it will be, no one knows, but that's what people are predicting. So, you know, having other ways where people cannot come to you, now you can come to them, so to speak, you know, is, is so I think the light bulb has, has gone off. And, and again, DTC, you know, for, for not all breweries, but I, I think for, uh, you know, certain ones that fit. Uh, that where they already have demand, uh, they have awareness, uh, and then it can also, uh, you know, market themselves properly through social media, what have you, you know, will succeed. So. Yeah, to kind of go well, off what you off. just, sorry, Aaron, go ahead. We're just going to keep doing this all day. <laughs> uh, no, I was going to say, uh, Ed, to your point earlier, that breweries still need to market themselves. I think for a lot of breweries, this has really uh really help them realize for in a lot of cases for the first time just how important your brand is uh above and beyond everything else about your brewery i mean the industry has become so fragmented at this point there's so much good liquid out there that just having good beer is not enough to sell it and it's especially the case with dtc because in a lot of cases you've given up some of your ability to tell the story of your beer you've given up your ability to actually be there holding the customer's hand it's a lot easier for them to to sift among potential options so you have to have the kind of branding that uh, commands the consumer's attention and uh, really inspires them to make a purchase above and beyond just what's in the can because chances are good they can get something just as tasty and just as well crafted a lot closer to home. So once you start leaving your normal market, uh, you really need to make sure that it's a brand that's going to speak to people outside of your geography and is really generating the demand for you. And I think just looking at the whole model of DTC right now, you have to run a smooth business in your taproom before you can look at expanding. John, you mentioned, you know, start locally, start in your own zip code, because you can't expect to have success states away unless you have success in your own taproom. And you got to think about it, too. While it would be a cool phenomenon for a brewery here in Virginia, just suddenly have tons of sales out in California. It's not realistic. You can't get just stuck in a dream and thinking about, man, I'm going to have my beer on the West Coast tomorrow. That's not the way it works. It needs to be a little reality check here. And so kind of look into the struggles that breweries are facing when they want to go this route. What are you guys seeing with some of the challenges breweries face when whether determining whether to go the direct to consumer route, you know, either shipping uh, distances outside of their hometown or just general legal compliance issues they're dealing with have you guys experienced dealing with breweries in your neck of the woods 
Yeah, I would, I would say that, you know, that's kind of a, uh, you know, this is our, our kind of the, the thing that we're focused on most, you know, every day is, is helping breweries figure this out. And um, <clears throat> yeah, compliance is, is certainly a, an issue and it's at a, at a lot of levels. And I think part of it is that, you know, you've got breweries out there that are being very bold right now. And they're saying, you know what, uh, the, this is not set up for beer right now. COVID has shut down my tap room. If we've got people out there that want beer, we're going to get it to them. <laughs> and, you know, they're, instead of asking for permission, they're going to beg for forgiveness. But I think, you know, the, the most important thing is that I think as a brewery, you have to like go back, take a step back. Let's not, let, let's not try to panic here. There's a lot of fear, uncertainty and doubt with everything that's going on here, but let's not panic. Let's go back and look at what are we trying to do as a business? Like what are the business and brand goals associated with it? And the sales strategies fall out of that, but you have to look at where is your, your audience of influence? So, you know, where is the, the right demographic profile for, for our breweries? Um, and I think sm starting small is is always where we start. Is you know, let's let's develop a good beachhead and, and an understanding of the workflows and the standard operating procedures that kind of go into this, and then let's expand from there. Um, it'll be interesting to see what happens to some of these breweries that have kind of gone out there and and uh, tried a different approach. Um, you know, they they may continue to do extremely well. It may there may be a crackdown at some point where you know it's going to cause us to kind of rethink, or who knows? It may push legislation forward uh, quicker than than what we're expecting with some of these direct consumer things. I think that this direct consumer potential model, and not to crap on anyone's idea or philosophy of it. It can be a really big wormhole that a brewery can spend a lot of money in trying to do and invest in and think that that's going to be because if they're not selling beer in their own backyard and people aren't like still coming and even though COVID and care, uh, curbside pickup, whatever, if they're not doing that and you're just trying to focus on shipping it out of your state, you know what, that's a bad business model. You need to really look at your business and then uh, investigate the four walls of what you have going on and, and see if what you what are you what are you doing wrong that people in your home market's not going to pick it up and i think and with uh, the last thing i'll note about the the whole direct consumer the biggest thing you know to to get people to come back and visit once if COVID is over when it's over is it, mm -hmm. is it november 4th or whenever what is it 20 uh, summer of 2021 i don't know when that is or what the or people are experiencing bars open up you, if you're not investing some marketing dollars, you know, like a little bounce back, like say, hey, if you bought, if I mailed you stuff online and it shipped to you and then, hey, bring this receipt back in your first pint or, you know, ten, uh, $5 off your first, you know, whatever towards the tasting room gift shop or something like that. If you're not doing a bounce back, you're missing the boat. Yeah, and I think that really touches on to an important part about just the craft community, beer community we love so much. It's that actual community aspect. You know, it's fun to drink beers on the internet with you guys, of course, but you know what? It'd be way better if we were in person just experiencing that tap room, learning from the bartenders, trying new things we never knew existed. And I think that's really what helped crafts grow the past decade. I think it's going to be a huge part of what helps craft grow in the next decade, but we're going to have to find that healthy balance of you know where can we go and have beer but also find <clears throat> out the times where it's appropriate to have it delivered or shipped to our homes yeah well andrew i think that you nailed it there and i say this all the time but it's like breweries are amazing at creating the experiences in in the tap room that's what 
builds brand loyalty. That's why, you know, everybody has such a strong taproom presence. And what this really is, is now taking them to the next generation where we've got to extend that brand presence to your online properties. All of that needs to feel cohesive. All of that needs to feel like it's part of the same ecosystem. I should have the same experience or, or get the same feeling, the same ethos when I'm, when I'm participating in, in any avenue with you, whether I'm in the tap room or I'm, I'm seeing your social media, visiting your website, checking out your beer finder, or seeing your cans on the shelves at a, at a retail establishment, it, it should all be a reinforcement of, of kind of that brand exposure. So what we see is like direct to consumers being the opportunity for individual brands to kind of create that. And it, you know, we've, we've talked about it a little bit jokingly here, like, oh, there's a lot of good beers out there. When people tell me that, hey, I want to get into California, I'm just like, dude, you, you know, they're making some pretty damn good beers out there. Right? Right. <laughs> um, and I don't want to offend any brewers by saying like, you know, uh, all products begin to get to commodities and open markets at times. You know, it's just like, you know, there's a lot of great IPAs out there. There's a lot of great loggers. If you make it easier for me to get my hands on your stuff, if you make it easier for me for that stuff to show up where I want it and, and convenient for me, then it, it changes my buying behavior. And I see that both with me personally, and I see that happening to the market. So it's almost more about how we're getting stuff than it is about what that thing is. And I think that's the that's the, the field in front of us that breweries now have the opportunity to do. And there's a lot of other brands. I think I brought up Nike in the presentation today, but you look at what Nike has done. It started in 1964, way before the internet, way before people were buying stuff online. And Nike continues to be a very strong brand because they decided to adopt technology to develop that direct-to-consumer channel. They said, we own it. You, you come through our channel. You're going to be able to design your shoes, put your name on it. It's going to show up two weeks later. If you want to get your kids on a subscription program so they get a uh, new yep. pair of shoes every month, like that's how it's going to be. And they're, you know that's the fastest segment of their growing segment of their business. And this is a business that's, you know, $40 billion this year and sold $12 billion to the shoes directly to consumers. Like it's that type of real world online experience where they're trying to pull those together that I think is the opportunity that breweries have at hand, but it doesn't change the fact, Andrew, that we're all going to be looking as humans to connect in, in a way that's meaningful. So you can't just do it by, by throwing something up. You got to think about it from the perspective that, that you brought in your question. No, I love what you guys are doing in the industry, John, to help breweries better connect online. Yeah. No, John, I mean, to touch on uh, what you were saying for a second there, too, and this is something I think that the craft beer world can learn a lot from the wine world on, is you now have the opportunity to expand the reach of your membership programs in a way you've never had before. Uh, and that's absolutely huge. Subscription models, membership clubs, uh, that that's really how you take beer, which is already a low-end luxury good, and really elevate it to a Veblen good. I won't spend way too much freaking time talking about what either of those things are. Uh, but at the end of the day, those subscription models give you a reliable source of income. They really drive that secondary market, which just further increases demand. So for a lot of breweries, they've been having to run those out of their tap rooms. That really limits your reach on people who have an interest in paying a lot for beer, who have uh, an interest in your specific beer and who are going to want it reliably enough to sign up for bottle releases before they're in front of them. Now, kind of the world is your oyster. It's just a matter of being able to make that value proposition to customers in areas, uh, you know, to your point in California, for example, that have a lot of good liquid, uh, which again is why that brand is, is so important. And it's why you need to ask yourself before you go into any distribution channel, which is all e-commerce really is, is one more distribution channel. Yep. Uh, why my brewery? Why is somebody in San Diego going to, you know, give a shit about the beer that I'm making? Uh, what about my brand? What about my liquid? What about my format? What about the way that I'm presenting this? What about my marketing is going to make me stand out in an extremely noisy marketplace these days? 
And I think Rick pointed out the price okay. point too. When you're buying, you know, a local IPA for 10 bucks a six pack, then I'm shipping one from Virginia to California. Obviously it's not going to be 10 bucks probably anymore. So why am I going to pay 13 or 14 bucks for the same quality beer when I could just get it from my local brewery? So I think that's something the consumers are definitely thinking about as well. And kind of to talk about the consumers for a second, we've definitely seen a little bit of changes in the consumers' habits through all this. They've been buying things they know. They've been buying larger formats. They've tried more of the fermented malt beverages. You know, what do you guys project for a consumer's taste and how is this going to be affecting the distribution models we're talking about right now? Uh, I think... Oh, go ahead, Ed. Okay. No, no. One thing, I, I don't know if you guys are seeing this in terms of trend, but uh, I've seen the, the pastry sours. <laughs> I don't know if you guys have, have started to see that. You know, obviously there was the pastry stout. Now it's evolved to the pastry sours. So just seeing. And I've seen it, you know, both in my export, you know, in my export business, but also, like I said, just overall. So just curious to see if you're seeing that trend. Uh, a lot of the fruited sours, you know, obviously the Berliner Weiss Goza styles, uh, those are starting. Obviously, your your New England, your double IPAs, those are still obviously far by far the the, the you know the brunt of, of of interest. But those are just some trends that I don't know if you guys are seeing it also in in, in your markets there. So, I would say when it comes to consumers' trends, to start off with what Andrew said is they're still don't know what they want. They're still looking what's marketed in front of them. And when you've got a hundred plus million dollars marketing in a brand, it's still, that still weighs and people are subliminally into that. I think that, yeah, seltzers are super hot. And if you're a local brewery, if you're a brewery and you're not making one, at least for your tap room, you're doing a disservice to your customers now, because I think it's to the point that it's considered another style. Just like, you know, what is the difference from a Baltic porter to a regular porter, right? Is a porter? No, it's different. But I think you need to offer that. And I think uh, the health connoisseur, the health conscious, the 21, to call it 35-year-old is still looking for that. I mean, I'm 42, and it's like I want to – like I told you before we started, I just ordered some non-alcoholic IPAs online for my friends that have a brewery. And I'm like, because I can't crush IPAs like I used to back in the day but you know i was looking at some iri da data that still i'm putting together for one of my clients and i did a rolling 52 weeks four billion dollars oh, four plus billion iri ipa is number one the next was a fourth of the size of it in dollar sales on a rolling 52 weeks and that was seasonals it's like or, or you know it's how i mean the, the still, IPAs are still still rule the world. I think of beer and seasonals um, are in decline. What's what's a, yeah drive, exactly? And seasonals are in decline. Just to yeah. drive that point home, the number and two I, is in decline. IPAs are still climbing. Yeah, yeah. So I think that you still have to offer uh, pastry stouts, pastry sours, like you said. Like I, the beer I just finished, a dill pickle goza. I'm like, there's there's something out there. I didn't think that that beer would work, but once you taste it, it's like crap this really works you know i mean there's I, I you still have to be creative during this time that we're going through right now and you can't just you know you can't just back burner or, or, or say i'm going to hold that style away you know because you never know it could be the next thing the next horse to, to to run your brewery so i think consumers still there's not a lot of loyalty anymore but i do think that 
And I've read some articles and seen some data that flagships during the pandemic have picked up. You've seen a resurgence in flagships. You know, I mean, it's is it their flagship? No, but you know, I tell you, for like a, a straight month, I was going to my local grocery store and I was buying six packs of Sierra Nevada torpedo. Like, I'm like, dude, are you at, you're out of stock again, man? I need this again. You know, just because it'd been so long since I had that beer, and I knew. And I could actually pick up the date on the bottle, make sure that it was fresh and stuff like that, and know that. But flagships have seen a seen an influx, and I think that's great for beer because it's bringing uh, getting that flagship back to a new consumer that just turned twenty one that maybe never had a Sierra Nevada Pale Ale or a Boston Lager, or for that matter, um, you know, a Dale's Pale Ale or a you know um, Berry Public Racer Five. Who knows? You're making me thirsty for a lot of really great beers right there. <laughs> and to your point, Rick, I mean, your flagship might not be what you think either. I mean, to, to take a good look at one that's both a fat, a trending style and is quickly becoming its flagship, Hazy Little Thing is uh, yeah. the number one IPA in the country uh, and is on pace to be the number one beer yeah. in Sierra Nevada's portfolio by this time next year. Uh, and really nothing's going to slow that down. So you're going to see some shifts and, and a huge part of what COVID has done uh, to your point again, Rick, is that flagships are coming back. But a huge part of that is just the fact that those are what you see in widespread points of distribution. Exactly. Uh, there's still not enough time right now to say whether this is a surge back long-term to flagships or this is just related directly to the situation we're in right now. But you do need to make sure that you are following some of those trends because at the end of the day, one of the only advantages small breweries have is that they are nimble and that they are able to adapt. Uh, there's really nothing else that you have to offer, whether it's cost efficiencies or product or even, uh, you know, ability to get to market versus, you know, Elysian or versus Goose Island. They can beat you on all that, but you can stay nimble and you can innovate and you can drive the creative side of the industry and stay on top of it in a way that they can't just because they have way too much inertia. And it's also a hedge against F&Bs as well, because at the end of the day, I mean, people might turn their nose up at a, you know, a, a key lime pieosa, uh, but you can put key lime pie in an F&B pretty quick and get it out to market for pretty cheap. The beautiful thing about beer versus wine or, uh, you know, sake or meat or cider is the fact that it's it's pretty easy to drop a lot of this stuff in there and still appeal to a beer crowd and hedge against some of those categories that otherwise might be taking additional share. Yeah, Aaron, I think that's uh, Aaron, Rick, both both really good points. And I think the, the way that I've described it to folks is, you know, when when it was hunker down time and and, uh, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty in the very beginning. I think IRI data was just like pointing us back to like those standards. We we knew if we were going to spend money, we wanted it to be on something that we could trust and we were going to get it in large quantities because we probably weren't going to be at the grocery store, you know, but once every two weeks. And I thought, you know, it was really interesting to see what was going on with Sierra, New Belgium, like a lot of those uh, staple brands, you know, it was up, you know, 22%, 33% respectively over that time. And then what we've seen now with the latest IRI reports that have come out a couple of weeks ago is that it looks like those are kind of back down They're Everything's normalizing a little bit. And I think people are starting to maybe get a little bit more adventurous again. And I... And, and I'll say it like I think what you guys are talking about on the innovation side from a from a brewing and style of perspective is also what is really important for breweries to be thinking about on the business side of things. Like now's the time to innovate. Now's the time to disrupt 
like our businesses are not going to look like they did seven months ago in two years from now, they're going to look completely different. Like what are other industries that have gone through digital transformation looking like right now? And what cues can we take from those or borrow from those? We're not, we're not doing anything new here. We're borrowing from everybody else. What are the things that we can borrow from other industries to kind of help us on our path? John, I absolutely love that. I love talking to people who work in other industries and just learning from them. What are some of your favorite examples of what other industries are doing right now that we can learn from in craft beer? Yeah, well, I think like if we look at the food space right now, like grocery deliveries, <laughs> subscription services, third-party delivery systems, it's like fast food's not fast enough or convenient enough for us anymore. We have to have we have to have now that fast food delivered to us. Like there's something about like that time that we would invest in that process that we're going to reallocate to things that are more important to us in life. And that just goes to show like how precious our time is. Um, so I think that if you look, uh, you know, uh, uh, I'll bring up Nike again with the direct to consumer channel. I think they're doing a phenomenal job with that. Um, and they've developed something unique that's just different than selling your stuff online in a marketplace. Um, but I think if you really look at the food space right now and you look at the amount of money that's changing hands with these third party delivery services, if you look at what's happening with Amazon marketplace up 160 percent, like those are the channels that we're looking at to help inform our breweries. And then when we're thinking about business models, man, it's all about how do we create that connection that makes it easy to get access to our products that are consistent. And I think that's really what we're focused on and to make sure that we're developing that human connection so that people feel the brand, they know the stories, they're connecting to the humans behind the brand. And that's what, you know, Aaron was talking about a few minutes ago and Rick was saying, well, why would somebody buy this beer? Well, they're gonna buy that beer over another option because they want that connection with that brand. And that's about humans connecting with other humans more than anything else. You know, Aaron, I think you wanted to chime in on that one as well. Yeah, uh, one of my favorite examples, because I think everything John said, especially channel wise, is 100% right. I mean, there's a lot to be learned from other beverage categories as well for uh, uh, other, you know, direct to consumer channels about how best to get uh, things to consumers in a way that aligns with their values. But one of my absolute favorite examples of how to watch other products for uh, insight into beer uh, from a crystal ball standpoint is actually the non-alcoholic beverage industry. It blows my mind how many people follow and commentate and analyze the uh, beverage alcohol industry and they don't pay attention to NA at all. And I'm not talking about, you know, NA beer. I'm talking about the fact that the rise of hard seltzer was an absolute non-surprise to literally anybody who's been paying attention to the last 10 years of the NA sector. It, it, all the writing was there. It wasn't something that was hidden. It wasn't something you had to dig deep on. Sparkling water and, and health and wellness were skyrocketing for a decade. And then hard seltzer hit and everybody in beverage alcohol was like, oh my God, where is this coming from? Well, it was right right there the whole time. Uh, you're seeing a lot of the precursors for F&B categories we're probably going to be talking about as regular features of beverage alcohol in the next 10 years. Things like hard coffee. Coffee has been on the rise for the last you know, five years, pretty damn strong. So it shouldn't be a surprise that hard coffee is getting its seeds. And we're probably going to see a lot more of it over the next, you know, three, four years. Uh, there are categories that are forming right now in NA that people are completely ignoring. And if they're following that segment of overall beverage, they'd have a lot better appreciation for some of the trends that are going to come down the pipeline because everybody drinks beverages. Everybody for most of their day is not drinking alcohol. So you get a lot bigger tapestry to really read some of the, well, in quarantine maybe, but 
you get a much bigger tapestry and a much bigger data set to be able to pull from to uh, see some of these trends and see some of these fads before they actually hit beverage alcohol if you follow that in a space. I think that, yes, that is true. You know, if we look at that NA Bev, like look at the crafted sodas that have come up. Um, a friend of mine, I like to call him a good friend, uh, Gary Marrero owns Maui Brewing Company. And, you know, he does Maui beer, 15 years. He's got a salt, he's got launched a seltzer line. He's got a spirits, he's got a hard coffee, and he's got a non alcoholic soda. A lot of breweries have gotten diverse. I've got a local brewery here that was, uh, I did some contract work for. Mm-hmm. Piney River uh, Brewing Company in Missouri. They make a root beer, you know, that um, sells tremendously well in a lot of the natural food stores and and grocery stores and stuff. So looking at that segment and trying to offer that, if you can diversify and look at that and doing some non-alcoholics if you're a brewery and uh, approach that segment is super, super smart. Um, I also think that you need to um, pay attention to the, what's going on in the spirit side. I mean, and seltzers as well, like seltzers. Okay. This next year will be year number four of seltzers and like really growing. Right. It's lasted a lot longer than them, them hard sodas did, which was just a shit show. Um, but now it's um, what's next, you know, what is next? You know, I mean, I haven't tried it. I have some friends that do live in the state of Texas. Um, there's this beverage called ranch water. It's, uh, heart carbonated water with tequila and it's flavored with lime. I've got one of my clients, Epic Brewing Company. They just launched a brand new brand called Paca, a hard seltzer brand, but they're looking at the innovation beyond seltzer. What is the next? And it's called, and they launched a brand called Hard Coconut Water. It's non carbonated, 5% alcohol, 99 calories, coconut flavored water with a little bit of salt to balance it out. It makes sense. What's what's next? You know, what is next? And I think they're a little this ranch water. And I think both Epic doing what they're doing is uh, above the curve. Uh, They launched in uh, Utah where the laws just changed where 5% and can be sold at grocery and chain and stuff. There's no more three, two extremely well. The trends, the data that I'm seeing and the depletions are phenomenal. Colorado. Um, sets just started last week with Kroger and King Supers and they, um, you know, they got their hard seltzer in there and then they're really pushing for the 2021 with, uh, the hard coconut water and they're launching this in California as well, starting um, the end of this month. So I think there's, there's space and being creative. And again, it's what's next. And I, I think if craft breweries and just craft beverages in general, if we try to think that, you know, we're going to ride this wave of, uh, uh, success and stuff like we did in the early nineties when craft beer boomed, but <laughs> you're not, you've got to be, you've got to think about what's tomorrow because tomorrow is really today and what you got to be planning for. So yeah, I think we also need to stop treating it. What's next is the right question, but that doesn't mean that whatever comes next is going to replace seltzer. Right. I think we're going to see further fragmentation of beverage alcohol, not, it's not going to be like hard soda went away and now we have hard seltzer again. Hard seltzer's here to stay. What's the next thing to slice up 2% of the pie? And then after yeah. that, what's the next thing to slice up 2% of the pie? And we're going to – the beverage technology and the demand has reached the point where people expect choice. It's one of the key components for millennials and Zoomers when it comes to any of their consumer purchases. So what they really want to see 
is a beverage made just for them. They want that on the non-alcoholic section. They got that. Look at, go to your average Whole Foods. They have 8 trillion beverages. They have more Italian soda than places used to have soda when I was growing up. So you were going to see a lot more of these additional little slivers come out of beverage alcohol. And we need to be okay with the fact that brewing equipment's really freaking versatile. So you have to be prepared to, uh, to pivot as necessary. And, and Aaron, in our conversation last night that included people celebrating 25 years in craft beer, Dave Thibodeau of Scott Brewing, you know, I asked him if they were doing a seltzer yet. And he's like, you know what? It's not my favorite thing, but he reached behind him. He pulled back a can and he had a seltzer. And what his explanation was, is kind of like what you gentlemen just said. You know, each generation wants their own beverage. You know, every few years when we have new drinkers, they want something they can call their own, just like music styles or whatnot. You know, people are always going to want something that is theirs. And I think we're definitely going to keep seeing the innovation happening. And, and that's okay. That's okay. We need to lose our egos about it. Yeah, it it's all, all right. part of it, right? <laughs> Yeah. One thing I'd like to add is just internationally, uh, I'm just curious of these trends since obviously, like as I mentioned before, I do exports. I've actually been pitching an NA beer and hard seltzer for over two years. Uh, so I don't know if you're aware, but uh, both BrewDog and uh, White Claw, they just launched, I think it was in June in the UK uh, with a smaller release into some European countries. So it's, right now it's still, the data still not there and obviously launching during COVID. <laughs> obviously is going to screw things up. But uh, like I said, I, I've been curious, you know, will they, will those beverage trends? Well, first off, NA beer has been more popular in Europe than in the U.S. I mean, countries like Germany, I mean, it's 15% market share in a host parts of Scandinavia, uh, also Spain and Italy. They also have a large uh, NA beer or low alcohol beer. By low alcohol, it's like 2% and, and less as by, you know, more or less by category definition, you know, but it's been dominated by the cheap macros, you know, your Heineken's, your Carlsberg, your Stella's, you know, they're double zeros. And, and then for the German brewers, a lot of the regionals will have a, a 0, 0.0. But, you know, you're talking about in uh, equivalent, probably under US, you know, one under $1 for the equivalent of a 33 CL or was that 11.2 fluid ounces. But what I have seen for the NA market is, you know, uh, a lot of the regional, uh, you know, local craft brewers, they're starting to put out an NA beer. So if you're familiar with some, uh, let's say brands like Damolin, obviously BrewDog with their, uh, was it Nanny State, McKellar has has put some out there, et cetera. So it's just curious, uh, you know, from an international standpoint, uh, you know, will some of these trends in the U.S., uh, you know, translate in particular hard seltzer. I mean, some of the early feedback is I have brought some hard seltzers out there. It's just for the European palate. It's just god awful. Honestly, well, that's, I think that's yeah, the and, I've got. <laughs> you look at the European palate. They've had uh, seltzers. They've had Rattler or yeah. they Rattlers and stuff for years. So, uh, I mean, you know, at two point three percent by weight volume or whatever, it's it's traditional. You know, it's served over there to almost anyone. So yeah, it's not going to translate over there where we have all these strict laws where you can't have that kind of stuff, you know? I mean, uh, so I think it's different. Um, I don't know if seltzers will, will trend over there. I think that maybe something like they also the have a much good for mixing with cocktails and doing different stuff. So, Hey guys, we're going to take they some comments. Much, much. Go ahead, Aaron, right. finish up. <laughs> You're fine. I was going to say they also have a much, much different culture when it comes to their NA products. Over here, NA tends to replace consumption. 
over there, NA tends to be incremental. So it, it's things people replace a drink on their evening out. Uh, whereas over here, you tend to either drink NA or you drink fully leaded, so to speak. So I, I think it's just a very different cultural approach to alcohol, uh, which is one of the reasons that, that I think it just it's different different approaches for very, very different consumers and different cultural attitudes just when it comes to alcohol in general. I totally agree to that. Now I'm going to throw up a you question speak, right Andrew. now and John and Ed, I apologize if it goes over your faces for a second. It might, it might bump you up. I'm not sure. But if none of you guys caught Laura with customized craft beer programs, she spoke right before this. She did a really fantastic talk on, you know, pairings and whatnot and just creating events around food. It's, listen to her speak. She knows so much. But she just asked a great question. Is when you diversify, as we were just talking about, your sale reps may not be able to manage it effectively. Different buyers, grocery in a different area, different outlets. Can you gentlemen express how address how to manage that on the brewery side or distributor side? I'll take first crack at that. I would Thank say um, work with your distributor. If you are going through a wholesaler, they have a whole key account manager team. Um, and most distributors now, in fact, the one that I used to work with, um, they we were they were selling non-alcohols and stuff, and then they're like, we didn't do it very well. We got out, they got out of that industry model. But now they're uh, years ago. Now they're back into it just to diversify and look at growth and trends and to, um, to help keep staff and grow the market share. So they usually have a key account team that is uh, non-alcohol team, um, an alcohol team, you know, and a beer team. If some of them are doing liquor, beer and wine. So you should really talk to them about how the approach is for a chain perspective to go into that grocery and look at that. And find the right people because yes, you are correct that they're each um, chain has different buyers. For instance, Walmart. Uh, working with them, I have a, a client that I mentioned. Epic makes seltzer and makes beer. Well, I can only talk to the beer buyer about beer. I can't talk to them about seltzer. I have to talk to another person. However, you know, um, Kroger on the other side, they uh, their category assortment manager and that team they do it all. And other chains are like that, but you got to look at the size of that retailer and stuff and how things are done. So, and it's a lot for one buyer to try to manage multiple books. And I'm trying to get share of mine at a wholesaler, try to get share of mine at a supply at a at a grocery tr store buyer who does liquor, beer, and wine. <laughs> it's 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 hard. You know, there's a lot of avenues out there. So, I think lean on your distribution team. Your if you have that, if you don't. Then you really want to think about what you want to be known for and even if you diversify and you think it's going to be hot pump it out to all the independent and local places and retailers you can and sooner or later a chain person or a grocery store is going to come knocking on your door and say hey i've heard about this brand i'd like to carry it and it might be late but you may not have the resources to do it to do it all at once when you launch that brand or product that's really great insight, Rick. Does anyone else want to touch on this one? Yeah. So it's also important to keep in mind as well uh, when you start diversifying, if you are a small supplier or a custom, uh, she actually posted on there a second comment about how smaller distributors who don't have necessarily separate off-premise, on-premise and, uh, you know, different categorical uh, sales teams, uh, that, that can be a bigger challenge. Think about what kind of accounts you're going to get into. A lot of these heavily... Uh, these, these smaller segments of beverage alcohol, or in this case, NA, uh, 
they tend to be a lot more oligopolistic than pluralistic like craft beer is. So you have to think about the fact that you're probably never going to be able to be the dominant player in any particular market. So rather than trying to get your product on every single Whole Foods shelf, for example, it might make more sense to try and make yourself the NA option for a lot of the accounts you were already excelling in. Because a lot of them are interested and a lot of them do have space for limited NA in the same way that they opened up space for limited cider. And now a lot of them have opened up space for uh, limited seltzer. So focus on the accounts that you're already excelling at, the accounts that your sales team was already uh, doing well at. And open this up as an additional way that you're able to provide a service and able to provide a product and take up share of their mind and share of their shelf and share of their product split rather than necessarily trying to play in a realm where you just don't have the resources or the uh, capacity to really participate in a meaningful fashion. No, that's think, great, Aaron. Lot, one thing to uh, pivot off of what Aaron just said is be the expert. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember when I started selling craft beer in 2002 that you know we started looking at, well, really it was just ambers and uh, pale ales, right? And maybe whatnot but as it evolved on no we would start looking at um the set and i would teach my sales team to go out there look at stylistically um do they have an i do they have the six major styles of craft beer at the time and then try to pit, and position that pick that one style from that brewery that we uh, supply and get that style in there so stylistically so be the expert that they call to uh be uh get that retailer that consumer uh, retailer buyer to be uh a fan of you, a raving fan of you, and to, to figure that out. And if you can ask some questions about their NA or their seltzer business or whatever you're trying to pivot and try to do something else or diversify into, ask them questions. Find Get the data from the people that are buying the product from you before you go back to the brewery and say, hey, we're shitting the bed. We need to make this style right now. You know, I mean, we need to, you got to figure that out and you, you got to do the, you got to do your homework ahead of time. You got, you got a pre-plan for that. Well, guys, we're going to take one more question from the comments section. I think it kind of goes to the, all the breweries and planning right now. You know, for any breweries and planning to those might, that might have opened during this tough time, can you guys elaborate on the state of taproom-only operations and whether or not it's a viable business structure anymore? Yeah, I think it's a, you know, I think, you need to kind of proceed with caution here. If, if you're looking to develop an entire business around a tap room, then you're going to be uh, subject to some of the effects that, that we all went through this year. So I think if you were doing it just focused on a tap room, then we're not really learning from the experiences related to COVID-19 and, and shutting tap rooms down. I would say that uh, I think the majority of breweries are going to remain very tap room focused, but I think you need to figure out other avenues in order to get your beer to your customers if tap rooms are closed. So I don't think there's an issue with it, with it being a very tap room centric model, but I think that you need to be aware that uh, a little diversification in sales channels is probably appropriate for, for the business. And if you're thinking about it just in terms of a, a tap room and not additional sales channels, then I would have some concern. I think real quick, Andrew, two th I'll follow up on him. Then there's a question that I want to answer quickly. Um, so, John, yes, I think if you're going to do a small little tap room, you've got to create an experience. Why is that person, that consumer going to come there and spend time there? Are they going to come for one beer or three beers? Um, so they've got to have something there. So a tap room model can be successful 
if you have a destination experience and something that can go on there that you can enjoy with family and friends and a community, there's got to be something involved to get people to stay there if you just want to do tap room model. The other question that I saw was for those about thinking about transitioning from self-distribution, partnering with the wholesaler, what are some of the business elements that need to be addressed, finance, production, capacity, sales, marketing, et cetera. I don't think there's enough time in here to go break all that down. That's a whole nother panel. I thought the same thing. When That's I was a great that. question. Great question. I would encourage whoever sent this over to, um, I think Andrew has all of our in contact information on here. Sure. If you email all four of us together or individually, we would be happy to answer that for you and give you some insight. Um, the biggest thing is if you're thinking about transitioning from self-distribution and you've got distributors, are they, are distributors knocking on your door or are you going to try to go solicit because you've hit your ceiling from self-distribution? You don't have the means necessary to continue to do it. So you're going to go ask for wholesalers. I think if wholesalers are knocking you on, on your door, there's a way to answer that question. If you're going to go knock on a wholesaler's door, there's another way to answer that question. So I think that's a little bit more in depth. I would suggest just reaching out to any of us or all of us, and we would be happy to give you some um, some insight on that. And it's a lot more of an individualized answer than you probably think it is. It right. really depends on a lot of factors. It depends on your core market. It depends on what wholesalers they are, uh, how you'd fit in their portfolio. It, it is one of those questions that really is best answered with a 45-minute consultation. <laughs> and Honestly, there's no good way of answering that with a blanket. A blanket. I was going to say, like, if I got that question, I would be asking Aaron and Rick. So <laughs> I, I do, um, you know, I do, I give out free, uh, free consultation for an hour and stuff. But the biggest thing you should be thinking about if you're in can or bottle, if you're in can and you're thinking about growing bigger, I'd, I'd pump the brakes a little bit because if everyone's short, getting shorted on cans, unless you are, you know, multi hundred million dollar brewery, uh, you're getting your cans, smaller breweries that are under 5,000 barrels. I had a customer client nine years. They've been with ball. Mm -hmm. They got their contract canceled. Four months ago. And we're looking at Q2 2021 minimum before oh, that's exactly. that's not exactly. that's not a that's not a quick fix. No, no, no. So well, Aaron, I want to throw one your way that kind of goes into what we're talking about right now, but we don't want to dive in too deep. You know, when someone's looking to build a relationship with the distributor, a wholesale real distributor, what are some things they should be considering? So, I mean, you obviously have all the ones that, that people know to look for, things like, you know, market share, the wholesaler, uh, you know, they'll make you all the promises in the world. We'll bring in this this amount of your product on this basis. Uh, the real thing that a lot of breweries don't think about, that good on you, Rick, round two, <laughs> that a lot of breweries don't think nearly uh, hard enough about is honestly, where do you fit into the, your wholesaler's portfolio or the portfolio of any wholesalers you're talking to? Uh, at the end of the day, if you are a, you know, strictly Reinheitsgebot, you know, Bavarian style uh, German brewery and they already have another one in their portfolio. I love Bierstadt. I love old Mecklenburg. You don't need both in the portfolio. So if somebody has one Pilsner line open, they're only going to recommend one of them. And if they already have one that they've been carrying for a few years and it's been doing well for them, chances are good. Your product's going to be sitting in a warehouse a lot longer than it's going to be sitting in someone's refrigerator. So ask the question about where you fit into their portfolio. What role do you play? Uh, the current estimates that I've seen, uh, at least on uh, the consensus side, have been showing that uh, wholesalers have 
slimmed down roughly 30% of their total carried SKUs over the course of COVID. Uh, It's not expected to increase on the other side of the pandemic. They overbought for a long time. They got too many brands for a long time because they're still figuring out how to handle craft beer. They didn't know how to do it. They had no idea what they were doing. It was brand new to them. Some of these businesses have been in uh, business for, you know, 60, 70 years. So they figured out craft beer. They figured out that there's a lot of brands that they don't need. They're starting to slim down and make a lot more choice decisions about who they carry. So you need to find out what role they intend you to play, uh, what role is the best fit for you, and if you think that's one that they're going to be able to actually carry to market and have success with. Because if your brand differentiators don't align with their needs as a company, uh, you're in trouble. Because at the end of the day, if they go to a retailer, the retailer is not talking to Brewery X. The retailer is talking to that wholesaler. They have a need. They have a stout that they really need to get on tap by the weekend. Uh, needs to be barrel aged. Who are they? Who's that wholesaler going to reach for? Is it going to be your brewery? Is that something you can offer? If not, why is that? So make make sure you're finding out how you fit in the portfolio and what niche you're going to play within the market. Now, Aaron, what are some questions you see breweries don't typically ask they should be asking when they're in these meetings? Uh, make sure you find out what they plan on doing with your brand. I mean, the whole, at the end of the day, a lot of times breweries approach these wholesalers trying to pitch themselves. And that is important in a lot of cases, but you also need to make sure that they're doing their job of letting you know what services they can provide. So how do they plan on rolling out your brand? Do they have a plan? Again, what niche do they see you playing? Uh, the other thing is just, just finding out uh, if they have any sort of marketing budget for you, if they're intending to do rollouts, uh, where where do they see you in the market and what types of accounts do they really see you within that market uh, having success in? So I think everybody can chime in on this one. Like, What can you do to make sure your distributor helps you stand out in these crowded markets? I, th- I think the biggest thing is having that com- funnel of communication, right? You need to find out who the stakeholders are at your, you know, normally you're a brewery, you get assigned a brand manager. Okay you know your brand manager. Who's your brand manager's supervisor? Who's the purchasing? Who's sending over the orders? Who's receiving? Who's the receiving manager? You got to know the stakeholders who are touching your product when it comes in. And a note about brand managers, their job isn't necessarily to help your brand. It's to keep the upper management from having to hear from you. So know how to get around that. They're a buffer. Yeah. They're, They're the doorman, right? You're trying to get into the bar and they're the doorman. So think about that. I think, you know, there, you've got to have that communication you've got to have that sense of um you can be candid with each other and you it's at the end of the day it's business but it's your livelihood and their livelihood and if you have to have a stern or candid conversation to get your point across it's okay you know don't be intimidated by walking into a four hundred thousand square foot uh distributor and thinking that you know you're a little fish on a big f and a hook you know i mean Go in there and, you know, be confident in their brand because they came to you and wanted to carry your brand. So have that boldness and tenacity to go in there and do that. If you don't know how to do that, that's why I'm here. That's where there's lots of people here. That's why I got out. I mean, I used to see these suppliers coming into me and they would be scared shitless. And like, I'm like, dude, I got a good friend of mine, GFBD. It's just effing beer, dude. It's. <laughs> simple we're not cured cancer we're not making uh sending people to the moon but just you know have that communication and have that relationship and building that because you're selling your your beer to them 
who are then end results selling, selling it to the retailer and who's hoping pitching it to the chains and doing all that stuff. So they're a consumer, if you will. So think about it as they're on the opposite side of the bar from you and you've got to have a communication and that's it's key. And don't be afraid to ask them what you can do to help your brand in the market either. I see so many breweries that just make their peace with the fact that their beer is not selling and they never just go to the wholesaler because they, they have, you know, 40 brands in their, in their book. Go to them, say, like, what can we do? What are you seeing work? What what are you seeing have effectiveness out to market? What can our brand do that is going to help us actually move product? Because at the end of the day, it's in their best interest to move as much beer as possible. They it move isn't boxes. necessarily in their interest to move as much of your beer as possible. But if you're able to work with them and you're able to ask them how to do some of that for them and how to offload some of that effort on their behalf and move additional product, they're happy to tell you. So take that. Yeah, yeah. Follow-up meetings, quarterly meetings, annual business Quarterly, planning. not it's annually. Different. Right. If you can get quarterly with that type of a wholesaler, depending on where you rank and file in their deck, great. But right now it's ABP season, and I was working on a deck for one of my clients. Uh, we have November 11th today, and it's ABP, and we're package innovation. We're looking about a new beer. I'm like roll, um, getting uh, sales data, and – Okay, here's where our uh, the volume is across our six beers, right? When I group seasonals, I group limited release, one offs all in in one, and, and everything. And you gotta you gotta understand the data and see what it's telling you because it's telling you something. Because they have a whole team of analysts there at that wholesaler. If it's a big, let's call it Miller Coors, Anheuser Busch, you know, one of those big, uh, they got the analytics to know where you rank and file. So you've got to understand what that means, and you gotta you got to be able to um, decipher. Aaron, I wanted to go back to something you and Rick both go. Actually, let's go to this, actually. Got a question from the comments. Can you explain the importance of an ABP meeting? Oh, enormous. Do you put together a planning meeting for your business, um, for your brewery, for your staff for the coming year? I mean, annual business planning, it's, you got to think about that. I've got a client. I'm like, hey, um, what's your CapEx budget look like for next year? He's like, I don't have one. I've never had one. I'm like, well, we need to start thinking about that and looking at that because when supply and demand comes, capacity and stuff, what's the capital expenses that we have to be able to budget and forecast for and depreciate old equipment versus new equipment and come across that? So it is extremely important because if you don't give that ABP, if you don't if you can't do it quarterly, if it's just comes out to once a year, if you don't give that distributor a roadmap or say you're self-distributing, if you don't give your uh, beer tenders, your production team, everyone within your four walls, a roadmap <coughs> on how to plan for the coming years to ensure that they have a job, it's a disservice. Uh, I, I don't think that, and I'm not trying to be harsh, but the reality is, I mean, we've been, pummeled with a lot of different stuff this year. And if you're not planning your business and, you know, at least three months in advance that you can put together an ABP meeting, it's, um, it's please reach out and ask for someone for help, man. You, you're going to need it. It's, it's pivotal. If you don't give a supplier, a, or I'm sorry, a distributor, not a supplier. If you give a distributor an ABP meeting, they'll, they're going to, you're at the bottom of their rank and file list. If you don't want to talk about what you're going to do the next year, they're like, oh, yeah, we just collected a brand, whatever. It's not going to compete against us. We can squash it. 
Yeah, and I mean, yeah. at the end of the day, unless you know what your goals are, you don't know how to get there. I mean, you ever gone into Google Maps and tried to uh, get directions to a place and you don't know what the address is or what it's called or approximately where it's at? Well, you're, you're never going to get directions there. You, you yeah. have to know where you want to go. And the ABP meeting, that's not where you build that, but that is where you present that and make sure that everybody's on the same page. That's right. how you, all of the sales turn towards the wind. You you get that sub distributor to sign off on everything that you presented and they you make some tweaks, they sign it, you sign it, and that's the, that's your contract for the next year. It generates it, accountability, and that's something exactly. that way too few brewers put enough focus on. You need internal accountability. You need accountability between your hierarchies. You need accountability to yourself as a business owner, but you also need to be able to hold your wholesalers accountable. And if you've never told them what you want to accomplish and how you want to accomplish it, then you can't blame them if they don't get there. Right, right. And I think uh, going back to the question you asked Aaron earlier about the marketing budget, this is where you can introduce that. Say, hey, you know what? I'm going to chip in 50 cents a case. You chip in 50 cents a case for every CE that's sold. That's our marketing budget. So our projection for 2021 is 5,000 CEs is our goal. So basically we have Five thousand dollars, you know, uh, fifty cents each a buck, you know, to be able to go to go um, market towards that. That's tap panels, that's sam samplings, uh, samples. That's uh, maybe running a incentive to go out and gain some draft distribution or some package placements or displays. That's the time that you help grow your brand and you come to that planning, and that's what an ABP is for. Yeah, I think everything you're saying, Rick, just speaks to the importance of business skills in the current state of craft beer. Not saying it wasn't important before now, right. but it's a necessity in every aspect of the industry. And, it, and it's hard, you know, I mean, this business, I've been in it for almost 20 years now, and it's sometimes you just start a brewery and people don't know. They're just good at doing this. And that's the thing. Reach out and consult. There's Aaron's on here. I'm on here. John, Ed, we all do our different things in the industry. And so does Andrew. We're all consultants and stuff. Uh, I may not be the best person for you and neither may Aaron, but who knows, you know, ask for somebody you, know, if you don't know, you know, it's the whole, what was that a uh, TV show back in the early two thousands or late nineties, you know, who wants to be a millionaire, phone a friend, you know, you get a consult, you know, I'm sure, like I said, I do an hour, you know, and usually it's about 40 minutes and 20 minutes of questions and give them back and stuff. But we're all going to do that to be able to um, help you guys. That's why I do this. That's why I don't work for a specific brewery anymore, because I want to help people grow their brand and grew their, uh, and tell their story. And I think well, one of the most important thing you guys discussed earlier is like getting that criteria you want to ask your distributors. And I think you also need to have that criteria when you're trying to find a consultant as well. And I think like Aaron mentioned earlier, your favorite Disney movie actually is really important. You know, when you're researching who you want to work with, you want to make sure you're going to get along. And just so we make sure we give everybody a chance to express themselves. I really enjoy Lion King. John, how about yourself? <laughs> Man, I'm going to have to go with Aladdin, I think. It's a very quality pick. The new or the old one? <laughs> Let's go old, man. Old school. Good answer. The only right answer. <laughs> you know, and Ed. Last but not least, uh, definitely the old school Star Wars, the original, the New Hope. You can't uh, go wrong. I guess that, that technically one. is a Disney movie. Yeah, yeah, Disney 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 now it is. Yeah. Good okay. answer. I changed okay. my answer. Then I like Ed's. <laughs> for, for, a, for a Disney movie, mine would be um, what was that? Fantasmic, Fantasma, or whatever that with the Asia. 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 Yeah, it's yeah, the yeah, first yeah. one, right? Uh, light and whatever that you know. Like a Lion King, baby. Lion King. 
<laughs> but with all that, guys, I want to go around the circle one more time. I mean, the conversation this past hour and few minutes has been really across so many great topics, and you guys' expertise definitely shines through. You know, just talking to the brewery owner right now who's not sure what to do, you know, 30 seconds of advice, what do you say to them in just that elevator when they ask you a question? Aaron, what advice do you give to the brewing world in their distribution questions right now? Yeah, I'm actually just going to echo what uh, Warren said uh, in the comments, I, th I think is really well put. Run your brewery like a business instead of like a hobby. At the end of the day, you can make really good beer and be a home brewer. You get into running a commercial brewer in order to sell good beer. So make sure that you take this seriously. Make sure that you think strategically and make sure that you uh, pay the respect to your customers and also to your employees enough to actually put the effort in into making this as successful as possible. And right on to you. I'd say, um, you know, as what Warren said in the comments and stuff, you know, run it like a business. It's not your hobby. If it is your hobby, then make sure you hire smart people around you. Like, you know, Steve Jobs said, you know, it's like, you know, hire, you know, you hire smart people uh, to around you to help. And sometimes it may not mean that you can afford a $100,000 national account manager on your staff. But you know what? If you can get about 10 hours of consulting a month from someone that can help you guide you towards that, then then do that. Reach out. I think the industry now, I've seen more. I have so many colleagues that are now doing consulting than ever before because what's happened in the pandemic and layoffs and, and, and things like that are just transitioning or distributor acquisitions where they lost their uh, GM role and they got sold to somebody else. And so they're like, hey, I'm going to take what I know and and try to help people grow their business and stuff. And that's what that's what we're all here for. I mean, I think there's still community in, in craft beer. You know, it's not just, you know, uh, everyone against the world. And I think you should just uh, uh, don't be afraid. Don't be shy. You know, we're, we won't be as harsh as John Taffer on Bar Rescue. But, you know what, I, I have been known to say, what the fuck were you thinking? <laughs> <laughs> By the way, if you are hiring a $100,000 a year uh, national account manager, my email is Aaron, A-A-R-O-N, <laughs> I don't need benefits. My wife has excellent ones. <laughs> John, you're up. Yeah, I guess I think it, uh, I'm just going to reinforce this for the, uh, for the sake of redundancy here, but guys, the, the business is the, the most important thing here. Uh, uh, you could be doing anything else with your time and talent right now. You've selected this, so run it like a business. It starts off with stating your goals, then figuring out the strategies that are gonna let you reach the goals, and then the tactics that are the day-to-day, week-to-week things that allow you to achieve strategy, and make sure that those are measurable and you're keeping on, on track with those. And when they, when they go off track, that's where the management comes in. You know, It's not a recipe where you're cooking something and every time it's gonna come out the same, it's not about having the plan. It's about making sure that you're executing it, measuring against it, and, and performing. And if you, you know, a, a failure, what is it? What do they say? A, a, a failure to plan is a plan to fail. That's that's what we see, you know, extensively with breweries. Now, I will say, over the past four or five years, I've seen the business acumen of breweries like really start to climb. So it's given me a lot of hope that where we're headed is now going to be much more focused on the numbers, much more focused on the business strategy, but you can't get there. Uh, you know, I shouldn't say, uh, <laughs> I shouldn't speak in, in such absolutes, but uh, you're going to have to get pretty damn lucky if you're, if you're not operating off a plan consistently. 
Yeah, and I think in a conversation about distribution in the current state of the world, we haven't mentioned pandemic and COVID-19 as much as I nearly expected we could. But, you know, a lot of short-term answers, but plan, 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 of course. And Ed, ending with you, my man. Yeah, no, like I said, I think it's just focusing on the customer. And by the customer, it's just not the actual end consumer that drinks your beer. It's if you are doing distribution, obviously, your distributor you're working with, your customer, your on-prem, uh, off-prem accounts that uh, that sell your beer are your customers. The bar, the staff that actually can help <laughs> sell your beer, hand sell your beer, those are also your customers. So I think for, for breweries is to really just focus on, on those. And, and again, using that more over, you know, encompassing term for the word customer versus just, if you will, the end consumer. And again, engage with them, you know, engage with all facets. And it is obviously difficult, especially with on-prem right now, uh, but find ways to uh, engage with them, get them to know you, know your brewery, what are you all about? You know, what's what makes you so special versus the other 8,000 breweries that are out there? Uh, so, uh, you know, and pretty much whether it's social media or obviously if you do have a, a brand rep running around, uh, is just find ways to engage again with all, you know, all facets of, of people, you know, of, 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 you know of, of that whole food chain that are your customer pretty much. And you hit on two of my favorite buzzwords, education and engagement. I mean, if you listen to me talk sometimes, just talk to brewery folk, those are things I preach every day. And, you know, running a business is one thing, but you got to be able to preach that education and engagement. It's a great way to end it. You know, you four, this has been a really, really fun time. Aaron, your tattoos look great right now. But <laughs> I think I really look forward to just having this conversation again in a year with you four and just seeing what has changed. If these predictions you guys made about what you think is going to happen, if it's true, if we see some brand new beverage out there next year, we can experience it. Didn't expect. Aaron, I'm going to blame you on that one because you're predicting <laughs> everything right now. And Rick, if it's, you know, coconut water or ranch water, we're going to give you a lot of credit. John, I'm expecting big things this year. And Ed, you're in so many different segments right now i just love picking your brain so i really appreciate you guys being part of this virtual conference and let's do it again in 365 days so everybody thanks for coming in and yeah, cheers thank you, everyone thanks, 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 Andrew. Andrew. Thanks, Aaron, rick ed appreciate hey, you guys thanks so much guys john take care guys have a good one see ya, see ya.